Lord, we come to you this morning desiring to be taught, desiring to be guided, desiring, Lord, to be directed in how we are to see you afresh and how we are to live our lives in light of what you are teaching us. And I ask this morning that as your messenger, I would simply be the mouthpiece for your text, that you would accomplish your purposes during this time and be glorified not only by what is presented, but Lord, also by the way we receive it. And may we be hungry, Lord, to learn from you this morning. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I must confess something to you this morning. This is not the first time I have preached on this passage. The first time I preached on this passage was the first time I ever preached in a church. I was 19 years old. It was the first Free Will Baptist Church in Anderson, South Carolina, which at that point in time was a mill town. And the people that I was speaking to were very simple folk. We met in a single wide trailer, if you can imagine that, that was set up as a church with pews. They were very short pews, but they were pews nonetheless, and a big pulpit in the front. And I can honestly say, as I remember it, my knees were shaking as I was speaking, but I was behind this pulpit, so I found some comfort. Um, my mouth was dry, and I remember swallowing between almost every sentence that I was uh, making. My palms were sweating so much that the pages of my Bible were sticking, you know what I'm saying, that kind of a thing. And, and this is what I said. We are all like these loaves given to God, and he is breaking us and multiplying us. And yes, the people look strangely at me, just like you're looking strangely at me today, but they were gracious, they were kind, they knew that I was a young man who was looking to um, serve the Lord in ministry, and they were gracious in their endurance of me. There were even some amens that took place in that church, um, and uh, it was uh, definitely a shaky time. Now, I was a freshman in college then, and as a freshman in college, you had this thing called freshman speech. And one of the things that we had to do in freshman speech was to give a devotion. So um, I decided, well, why, why you know, study something new? You know, it's freshman thinking, you know, management of time. I thought, well, I'm just going to take the same passage, and I'm going to give that as my devotion in that freshman class. And my uh, speech teacher was Miss Eubanks, um, also known as Sergeant Eubanks. Um, she was probably 65 or so years old. Um, she definitely was a sergeant. She had the look to her. And I gave my devotion that day. And she just stood there in the back of the room looking at me. And she had this appearance of disbelief. It wasn't just in her eyes. It was in her body. And she said, um, Phillips, uh, what is your major? And I said, accounting, because at that point in time, it was accounting. With a sense of relief on her face, she said, good, I was worried it might be pastoral studies. <laughs> so, now 33 years later, I want to give it another go. 
Let's take some time to think about the setting of this text. Uh, this is so familiar to us. This is a story that not only we know, but the world knows it. They, they've heard about it. Um, it's famous, and it's easy in context like this to assume that we understand what it's talking about and we know the story and not necessarily to allow the text to speak. And so this morning, let's consider the, the setting. And I'm going to just press to you or press with you that, that there are three things that really are, are moving us along in this text to help us understand what Mark is getting at and the reason why it's included. First of all, the disciples come and they are reporting to Jesus. Remember, they had been sent out on ministry. And as they were sent on a ministry, they finally came back. That was verse 30, right after this flashback kind of episode that Mark inserts there in the story relating to John and Herod. And verse 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that he, they had done and taught. I remember as a youth pastor, we did some, some missions trips, and one of the times of, of great joy is just sitting down with the students afterwards and just reflecting on what God had taught us. And you can just imagine the kind of conversation that went on during that time. There must have been some exciting discussion, sharing those experiences, how their, their teaching affected and changed lives, how they cast out demons, how they were able to heal people in a way that they had never done before. And you could almost hear the joy coming from the ink of your Bibles. And I'm sure they also shared a little bit about those places that they went that rejected them and how they followed Jesus' instruction to shake the dust off of their feet as a, a warning testimony against them and, and how strange that was maybe for them to do that. And at the same time, they likely shared how God provided for their needs. Remember, they were told to go out and to not take a bag or money or any bread for their journey. So there's this reporting to Jesus. Secondly, there's this idea of resting with Jesus. Verse 31 reminds us that Jesus understood that with success in ministry comes a, a needed time for rest and recuperation. Verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And Luke tells us they went to Bethsaida, a town on the northern banks of Galilee near the mouth of the river Jordan. And Jesus realized that they needed to get away from it all. And there's, there's a time, friends, for us to get away. We need sometimes to retreat, to, to get away, to rest, to recover physically, spiritually, even emotionally, and maybe even mentally with all the things that have been going on. And sometimes we need other people to tell us to do it and to help make it happen. And just... Just by means of kind of passing application, one of the ways you can minister to people in, in the context of serving in ministry or those who are laboring hard in the context of the church is to pay for them to get away. And not only that, to make arrangements for their children. Not only that, to consider the obstacles in the way that might hinder them from actually taking that time and retreat. And by the way, I'm not just talking here about elders and pastors. I'm talking about people who are serving in the context of church. 
I'm thinking about couples that maybe are struggling in a relationship or struggling with their parenting, and they need a break, they need a time, they need to be able to sort through some things, and you can bless them, and sometimes it takes you coming to them and saying, listen, we've made arrangements. We hope that this will work for you. Let us know if it doesn't, but this is where we want you to go. We're going to make arrangements for the kids. We want you to go enjoy a break, make the most of the time. That can be a huge blessing for people and encouragement for them in, a, in a, a life and a ministry where things can be difficult. So the point is this, are we looking out for one another, being sensitive to consider if we can help those uh, whose candles are burning at both ends? And here Jesus is able to assess the situation with the disciples, and he's saying they need a break, they need a rest. This has been hard work for them. So that's part of the setting. There's another thing that happens, though, and it's in verse 33. Many saw them coming and going, or saw them going, and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, we can conclude that the disciples have been going out and doing ministry, and so some of these people may be the people that the disciples had interacted with, but remember from the last section of Scripture, the news about Jesus had gone all across the country, even to the ears of the puppet king Herod. So they, you know, they were well-known. Jesus and the disciples were well-known um, in the whole area. In fact, the people were, were, were talking about them. They were the talk of the nation. Some believed, if you remember, that Jesus was Elijah who had returned or John the Baptist who had been risen from the dead or maybe he was one of the, uh, the old prophets. But certainly they understood there was something of an historic caliber about him. And here he is, and he's, he's on a boat with the disciples, and they're heading to shore. And people were running to get to where Jesus and the disciples were going. They wanted more of the same, more healing, more casting out of demons, more teaching. In verse 34, then, we have this, this beautiful passage that lets us know that Jesus then goes ashore. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. This text, friends, is central to this story. If you could run your hands across this text in a topographical way, this text would rise up out, and this would be, it would be saying, you know, this is what you need to focus on. This is what you need to look at. It reveals something about Jesus that Mark has not yet revealed. Just do a quick review about the things that, that Mark has revealed about Jesus. He has revealed that he is the Son of God. He has revealed that he is the great healer of the people. He's the great miracle worker. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the, uh, the, the great master teacher and preacher. He is the one who does who has mighty power, if you remember, power over dangerous storms, power over demonic activity, power over diseased bodies, and ultimately power over death. But now Mark wants to take things even deeper, and he wants to show us something about Jesus that connects him directly to the Old Testament. He wants to show us the following that Jesus is the true shepherd who satisfies the flock. Now, friends, Mark is giving us a vivid 
eyewitness account of what is going on here. You may have caught the, the imagery, the green grass and the, the like, you know, like sheep without a shepherd. There's this, these pictures that are portrayed in the words here. But this is a reflection of what took place in the Old Testament. Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness being satisfied with God's provision. Here are the parallels. The location is similar. Here we have a desolate place. Back then it was the wilderness. Same kind of location. The provision is similar. Jesus is proclaiming here the the bread of heaven, and it corresponds to the manna that was provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. You have the arrangement that is similar. We have the, the tribes of Israel in that Old Testament text, and you have Jesus saying, you know, order these people in an organized way so we can distribute the food. And, of course, the symbolism is there. The provision of food by Jesus symbolizes uh, what it symbolized with Moses, God's saving grace in rescuing his people from bondage. So this miracle, friends, of feeding the 5,000 is teaching the people, it's teaching the disciples, it's teaching us that Jesus The second Moses, that's language that comes out of the book of Hebrews, being far greater than Moses, again, language that comes out of Hebrews, meets the needs of his people. Jesus is the great shepherd. He is the true shepherd. He is the one who satisfies. So let's look then at this shepherd. Most of our Main thoughts are going to flow out of verse 34. Number one, I want you to notice the shepherd's comparison. As Jesus neared the shore, this is what the thousands of people actually looked like to him. Their white and earth-toned clothes on the backdrop of green grass. Like a huge flock of sheep, who lacked order, lacked discipline, lacked leadership. They needed someone to guide them. They desperately needed someone to provide food and and, and, and spiritual nourishment for them. Now, why are they shepherdless? That's a really important question here. And I think our context would help us understand that. First of all, the religious leadership of that day had failed in faithfully nourishing them with the truth. In other words, the truth was obscured for the people because of all the rules and the regulations the Pharisees and the other religious leadership had added to the law of God. And so the people were more in bondage to a, a regulation that, that kind of surrounded the truth of God. And so few of those religious leaders really cared for the people. Instead, they only cared about their own self-righteousness in keeping their rules and regulations. And Jesus does a lot to challenge them with that. Secondly, you might even say that Herod the king basically was uh, apathetic toward these people. He was more concerned about living it up as the king. He was more concerned about just doing what he wanted to do. He didn't care for the people at all. And then, of course, John the Baptist, who had been around, well, he is now dead at the hands of Herod the king. But get this, 
Now Jesus, the good shepherd, gets out of the boat and steps on shore. And something's going to happen here. Something marvelous and wonderful and beautiful is going to take place as the text continues to unfold. There's a lesson for us all today. The question maybe that we need to ask ourselves is this, and this is a personal question. Are we shepherdless sheep? What's the answer to that question as a church? The answer is absolutely not. Why? Because Jesus is our chief shepherd. Now, you say, okay, that's good. But, you know, how do I grab a hold of Jesus? Well, you grab a hold of Jesus by opening up his word, but there's a responsibility for the church, which is called God's flock, to have as leaders under-shepherds. And those under-shepherds are to reflect the truth of Christ, the life of Christ, and make sure that that is taking place within the body of Christ. In fact, if you want to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 5, if you would please, in verse 1. And you need to see this to understand how God functions with the church that he has created. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, this is Peter speaking, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but how? Willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but how? Eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, you know, the, 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 Christ talks about his followers as sheep. But understand this. Elders, although they may be overseers, although they may be under shepherds, are still what? Sheep. We all go, bah, okay? We're all sheep given different responsibilities, given different parts to serve in the context of ministry. Now, let's continue on by, by, by considering the, the shepherd's compassion because this all kind of works together. When, when sheep have no shepherd, they are in great danger. The fact that God speaks about his people as a flock of sheep, hear this, is not necessarily a compliment. Now, I'm no expert on sheep. I didn't grow up in a farm. I think I've bumped into a few sheep here and there. I think they were sheep, if that helps you know how much I know about sheep. But if you do a little reading, you will soon learn that they're not the kind of creatures in God's creation that are typically survivors. They're not strong or independent. They're not hunters or fierce predators. They're actually extremely pathetic and totally dependent on a shepherd. In fact, they're really dumb. Here's a real news story that summarizes why sheep desperately need a shepherd. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 meters to their deaths in a ravine in Van province near Iran, but broke the fall of another 
1,100 animals, other sheep, who survived. Shepherds from a nearby village neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The loss to local farmers was estimated at $74,000. So here's the reality. One leader sheep decides to walk off of a cliff. Behind him, 1,499 say, let's do that too. The first 400 fall and die, but in doing so, create a wonderful fluffy pillow for the rest to land on. (laughs) The sheep don't know, oh, it's a cliff. Maybe I should stop. It's just like, oh, that one went over. I guess I'll go over too. Right? And bam, they go. That's just the reality. That's what sheep do. When facing danger, they tend to panic. They run in all sorts of different directions. This one came out this year. The Daily Telegraph, July 2017, says more than 200 sheep have died after they hurtled over the edge of a cliff in the Pyrenees Mountains while being chased by a bear. So in an attempt to escape, they all just followed each other to their deaths. We're a bunch of sheep. That's what Jesus says. And we're a bunch of sheep that need a shepherd. So what happens when sheep don't have a shepherd? Here's four things that I, I kind of came, came up with. Number one, they're lost. They're directionless. They can't find the right way. Number two, they're malnourished because they don't have a shepherd that's leading them to the right kind of pasture. They don't get the necessary food that they need. They are defenseless against all sorts of dangers. And ultimately, without a shepherd, they die. Now you see, this is all part of the picture of why when Jesus views them as sheep with, you know, without a shepherd, and now he is having compassion on them, this all works together. There's implications for sheep not having a shepherd. Again, notice verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them. This word compassion means to be moved in one's bowels. The idea of, of compassion flows out of the, 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 the midsection. That was how the ancients understood how our emotions worked. Now, Jesus here isn't coldly analytical about their condition, but deeply moved with compassion Heartfelt compassion. He felt their confusion, their their despair, their suffering, their lostness. He felt their pain and experienced genuine anguish for their sufferings. These were people who had not been treated well, who had not been shepherded, who had not been cared for by the people that were put in place to care for them. When Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, He wept. When Jesus first comes into Jerusalem after his triumphal entry, he stops and he he looks over Jerusalem, and this is what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's so moved with compassion over Jerusalem. He loves his people. Now, friends, 
Let me ask you a question. Are you, are you still the kind of person who has compassion for the lost? When you look at that coworker who, who doesn't know Christ, who is, you know, who's pursuing a life of chaos and ruin, do you have compassion for that person? Or has that just now become kind of the, the norm of life? And we maybe need to put on our, you know, our, our new lenses. You know, when you go to the, the optician, they, they put on these different lenses, you know, A, B, A, B, right? We need to put on some compassion lenses and, and retrain ourselves to view people through the lens of compassion because of their condition. I mean, people today think, oh, we've got it all figured out. Oh, we have our leaders. And Jesus would look down and say, these people are sheep without a shepherd because they don't have me as their shepherd. And because they don't have Christ as their shepherd, they are wandering all over the place. And they're following people to ruin. But do you have compassion for the believer who is struggling with thinking that comes from the world and is choosing to ignore the guidance of Christ the shepherd in their life? I think that happens far more than we want to admit it. When Christians are considering choices in life or going through difficulties in life, and rather than listen to the shepherd, they listen to other things. And friends, we need to have compassion for one another to, to help one another who are going through things, to, to point them back to what the shepherd is saying. Because he ultimately is the one who satisfies. This is a shepherd's compassion. And now we see the shepherd's care, the shepherd's care. What does a compassionate good shepherd do with sheep in such condition? Verse 34, and he began to teach them many things. Now, in our culture, that would kind of run contrary what do you mean teach them? These people don't need to be taught. They need stuff. They need houses. They need food. They need resources. But what does he teach them? Luke 9, 11 tells us that he taught them about the kingdom of God. And this was no short teaching. This was a long episode of teaching. This wasn't the, the Cliff Notes version. And it seems a little strange to us that Jesus would begin by teaching. Matthew and Luke tell us that he taught, but he also healed their sick. Mark doesn't include that information, but stresses the fact that he taught them and for a very long time. Now remember, the preaching and teaching of the gospel of God and what life in the kingdom is like was the priority. Turn back in your Gospel of, of Mark to verse uh, 38 of chapter 1. Mark 1, 38. And I'm just, I'm just connecting a theme that is, that is the beginning of Mark here. And Jesus specifically is saying, yes, let's go because preaching is what I have come to do. Jesus may have gone into villages and towns. He may have healed people. He may have cast out demons. But the priority was always to teach about the kingdom of God. 
right? The healings, the casting out of demons, the other things that Jesus did were always secondary. And in fact, were there to reinforce what he was teaching. Now, I mean, just one example that I can give you. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he's at the pool of Bethsaida and there's a blind man that's there, or maybe it's a lame man, right? And he's like, he heals him. Have you ever asked yourself the question, of all the other 50 people that are sitting around the pool, why did he choose this particular one and not heal them all? Because ultimately, Jesus didn't come to heal every one of their physical struggles. He came to bring the good news of the kingdom, the good news of reconciliation with God that comes through a Savior. That is far more important. That has far more eternal consequences and implications. So they needed the truth. Simply healing their diseases and sending them away, although humanly compassionate, is incomplete. It's not loving to leave out the truth of the gospel. And hear this, any Christian organization that tends to provide humanitarian stuff without accompanying it with the truth of the gospel is failing, in my opinion. The humanitarian is a wonderful thing. People need that. But it needs to be backed up with the gospel. And you've got to find some way to make sure that that is working because in a culture and in a society that's like, eh, the gospel, but give us your humanitarian stuff, there's a tendency to say, well, we'll hold up back on the gospel, we'll give the humanitarian stuff, and what ends up happening is the, the gospel stuff is kind of lingered in the back here. Right? When was the last time you went to the Young Men's Christian Association and heard the gospel preached? Young Men's what? Christian Association, the YMCA. I mean, you don't associate the YMCA with, with the gospel anymore. Why? Because they've abandoned that, right? That's, that's the concern. On the other hand, hear this. Simply filling your head with knowledge without putting it into practice for God's glory is just as incomplete. So there's this, there's this tension between the two that is going on, but Jesus models for us and shows us the priority of teaching. Secondly, not only does he care enough to teach them, he cares enough to involve them. He cares enough to involve them. Look at verse 35 and verse 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It was springtime, probably mid-April or so, and likely the sun was setting around 6 o'clock, so maybe this is around 4 o'clock, and the disciples were thinking, they're thinking, well, all right, these people are here, they're in a desolate place, they're out in the wilderness, these people are going to have to leave if they're going to get something to eat, and remember, they didn't have light posts, you know, they didn't have, you know, all sorts of things that would help you get from one direction to the other, you couldn't call Uber, um, that camel would take too long to get there, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they needed, they needed help, and so... Uh, you know, he goes to, or the disciples go to Jesus, and notice what verse 37 says. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. Now, what kind of a command is that? It is a command. This is a, this is a command, not a suggestion. You here is emphatic. So, 
as I interpret it, in an annoyed and somewhat disrespectful or even sarcastic manner, they reply, shall we go and buy 2,000 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? I mean, we're not just going to run down to the local baker and be able to feed these 5,000 people. They're not going to have enough. And we don't have the two, 200 denarii, which, by the way, was eight months' wage. So basically what they're saying is this. You must be joking. We don't have the ability to do that. I've never heard anything so ridiculous in all my life. Remember, we left all to follow you. We don't have anything. Now, of course, the disciples couldn't feed them, at least not in their own strength. But in the strength of Christ... Well, that's a different story. Now remember, there's, just, there's multiple things that are going on in this story, aren't there? There's Jesus demonstrating himself as the, the chief shepherd. There's Jesus now interacting with the disciples in this ongoing training process. Notice the, the reaction to the needs of the people. We look at the disciples in Jesus. The disciples say, get rid of the people so they can take care of their own needs. Or if you want to say it in a positive way, let the people go so that they can get something to eat. Jesus says, you take care of the people's needs. They're tired, hungry, and needy. Then the reaction to the resources that are available, the disciples say, anything we have is useless. It's insufficient. And Jesus says, give me what you have, and I'll do the rest. Turn, if you would, back to Mark chapter 6 and verse 8. And I want you just to pick this up, and you can see how, how Jesus is, is not only ministering to the people, but he's also ministering to the disciples. What is one of the things that Jesus says to the disciples as they are going out to do ministry? Don't take money. What's the next thing? Don't take any bread. In other words, you will be provided for. <laughs> So God, friends, delights in teaching us. He delights in involving us in the exercise of his grace. He delights in using us to bring the bread of life to a needy world. And we must also note that the expression, you give them something to eat, is an echo of another Old Testament story that we find in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 42. And it has to do with Elisha, a man from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, I really don't have anything special in my life to give to God. And I say this, God is not looking for anything special in your life. He just wants you. He wants your money. He wants your time. He wants your talents. He wants your arms, your legs. He wants your mind. He wants your breath. And we go on and on. 
That's the stuff that you have. And maybe it's because you've been reluctant to take what seems insignificant and turn it over to God. You, you think, this is not much. I really don't have anything to offer. And, and, and Jesus is saying, well, wait a second. I want to work through you. I don't care if you think it's insignificant or not. I still want to use you in the building of my kingdom. I want to work my plan through you. Now, listen, I am up here today as a pastor, not because of my giftedness. Remember, I had a freshman speech teacher that was like, "Uh, no way. It is God then who works through people. He is the one that accomplishes his purposes through what meager things that we have to offer. Remember, it's It's he who is doing the work through you. He created you. He knows you. He is gracious enough to include you in the work that he is doing. That's that's a privilege, friends. And if we're so intimidated by what we think is insufficient or incomplete, we may be missing the opportunity to be used by God in serving him in ministry. So he says to the disciples, verse 38, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. They had commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. Five loaves, two fish, orderly groups on green grass. The stage, friends, is set for one of the greatest miracles recorded in Scripture. Now, again, we're so familiar with it that we may have lost the awe of it. But put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the disciples, commanded to gather the people together in groups. They hand over the loaves and the fish and pass them out. They're waiting to see what Jesus is going to do as he stands over these loaves and fish, probably frustrated but they're still learning about their master. Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. Now, can you imagine the look on their faces? They have already experienced and have been shown His provisional power, that's when they went out on ministry and God provided for them. But now Jesus is giving them a first-hand look into his creation power. Yes, this passage declares that Jesus is this shepherd who, who, who loves his sheep and who is willing to satisfy his sheep, but is also a window into who Jesus is. He is the one who creates out of Nothing. It is no small thing for him to take a few loaves and fish and multiply it and multiply it and multiply it because he is one who creates. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is, by his very nature, a creator. And here they are watching 
and observing Jesus create loaves and fish out of this little insignificant amount of food. And friends, this creation power is also what brings change to our lives. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He is this mighty creator God. Now, friends, as much as God wants to involve you in his mission of the gospel, the story is not about you. It's not about me. It's only in John's account that we have this record of actually who had the loaves and the fish, and it's this little boy. And, you know, many times in, in Sunday school classes, what is taught here is, you know, this boy comes, and he, he has the loaves and the fish, and, and he gives it all to Jesus. And, and the, the moral then of the lesson is, don't you want to be like that boy? Friends, that is not the point of the story. The point of the story is to say, look at Christ. Look at who he is. He is the one who is greater than Moses. He is the one who satisfies his sheep completely. He is the one who has this creative power. Why? Because he's God. And he delights to share his ministry with us. The focus is not us, it's on him. Shepherds care. He cares enough to teach them. He cares enough to involve them. He also cares enough to satisfy them. Verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. Don't allow that small verse just to kind of fizzle away. How many people were there? Well, it says 5,000 men. And we're not sure if that means that there were lots more women and children, and the men were used as the marker. So it could be 8,000. It could be more than that. The bottom line is, I don't know the last time you served 5,000 people out of a few loaves and some fish. What we have here is a staggering miracle by Christ to bring satisfaction to those who needed their hunger satisfied. He is the complete satisfier. Notice this was a complete, total satisfying. And not only that, it says they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. There was a whole bunch left. Incredible. Perhaps the multitude went home full and singing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And they begin to connect the fact that this one who has fed them in the wilderness is none other than the very Son of God. That's what Mark is trying to show. That's what he's wanting us to see, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the one foretold, and he is the one who has come to bring satisfaction. Now, let's bring these thoughts to a close. I have 
three passionate pleas to all who are present today. The first one is this. I want to plead with you to listen to the shepherd. Listen to the shepherd. You may be here this morning and you are shepherdless. You know about Jesus. You can tell a few things about who he is. But he is not your master. He's not your Lord. He's not the one that directs your life. You have never, ever humbled yourself before him and said, I want you as my shepherd. I want my satisfaction to come from you. You've, you've never trusted in what Jesus accomplished as that good shepherd by going to that cross and dying for your sin. And as a result, you're still shepherdless. And there's a shepherd who's looking at you right now with heartfelt compassion. He cares about you to the point that he has given himself as a sacrifice to you. Will you listen to him? Will you seek him out as he is seeking you out so that you can be healed from your sin and become a child of God. Remember, friends, the gospel of Mark is first a gospel of good news. It is directed to those who are not believers. It is also a gospel of good news that equips the saints to know who Jesus is. And so one of the messages that's going on through this gospel is, who is Jesus and what must I do with him? And here we find out that he is the shepherd and what must I do? I must listen to him. And as I listen to him, I humble myself before him as being that true shepherd. Secondly, not just lean, learn to listen to the shepherd, but learn to lean on the shepherd. You may be going through a crisis right now, a relationship that's going sour, a job that is in jeopardy a bank portfolio that is slowly losing value and you could add in what you're specifically facing. But friends, there's always a temptation when struggles of life come for one of God's children to turn to solutions that come from the thinking of the world rather than leaning on the shepherd for direction, for counsel, and for advice. And in your desperate condition. It's very easy to abandon God and his shepherding care. Now, I just want to plead with you. Be careful that you're not drawn away and enticed by the wrong kind of thinking. Your situation may be desperate, but that desperation is not a means or a reason then to say, God, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm going to do this. And sadly, when people do that, they end up with a distorted view of God because they've begun to believe other things. I want to counsel you, be sure to pause long enough to talk to God, to seek godly counsel from faithful brothers and sisters, and to keep leaning on Christ, who is that true shepherd. Now, friends, there's a sense in this story that that's what the disciples had to do. You give them something to eat. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, give me what you have. What do you have? All right, a few loaves, some fish. All right, give it to me. 
get the people in order, line them up, get the baskets ready. Wow. What is, what is, what is, what is going on here? The, the, the baskets are overflowing and there's fish and there's more bread and they start handing it out to the people and before they know, everyone is fed. The disciples, in their ignorance, in their lack of understanding, could only see things with their own physical and cultural lens. And they were put out initially by their master, but they did what they had been told. And Christ used them to carry out this incredible miracle. They didn't understand, but they leaned on him. And oh, how he supplied. So not only listen to the shepherd, not only lean on the shepherd, but also learn to live with the shepherd. When you walk into work tomorrow, remember you walk in with Jesus as your shepherd. So he changes how you view work. He changes how you View your security and status within the context of that business. He changes how you behave in your work. You're you're not really working just for the money, but you're working as a servant of God, living out the gospel in a context where people don't know Christ. When you change that diaper tomorrow, vacuum the house and mop the floor and cook dinner, Remember, you're doing all of that with Jesus as your shepherd. He changes how you view your role as a parent. He changes how you look at your goals and your accomplishments for the day or for the week. He changes how you behave. It's mundane, yes, but it doesn't have to be drudgery. And you get a new perspective, you get a new idea, a new thought, and you understand that part of your role is to affect the next generation. So you start to change those diapers with a new vigor and say, I'm doing this for the Lord. He is my shepherd. You know, get on there. All right. right. Your attitude changes because you realize that he's with you as you're living out life. When you crack open that book at school and listen to that teacher just go on and on and on and you're falling asleep, remember you're doing all that with Jesus as your shepherd. He changes how you study. He changes how you view your time and your efforts. He changes how you choose to behave. He is training you for something yet to come. So when you walk with Jesus as your shepherd, you recognize that he is there providing for you, sustaining you, but with a purpose. When you wake up tomorrow as a retired person, you look back on your life and you wonder what your day will bring or if there's even value to your life now that you are no longer in the workplace. Remember that your retirement does not take place without the shepherd. Your retirement is not time just to live it up. 
Your retirement is just another stage that God has gifted you to serve him in a new way. And with him as your shepherd, he gives you fresh awareness of what that looks like. To think through, am I ministering to family? Am I able to minister in the church? Is this giving me another platform to be an encouragement for the gospel? However that might look. If you're still breathing, he still plans on working his kingdom through you. It's true. He's not done with you. Friends, Jesus is coming to you this morning and is saying, you give them something to eat. He's not saying, you've got all these incredible gifts and skills and I just need them. He's not saying that. He's saying, you're sheep. But I want to take sheep with whatever they got because I work through sheep. I work my plan through the insignificant things that that these people have. So he's saying, I want want to work with your your hands and your money and your time and your mind and your smile and your energy and your gifts and your failures and your tragedies. Remember, Jesus delights in accomplishing his will through us. He takes what seems insignificant and turns it into something significant. He takes what seems useless and turns it into something useful. He takes what seems insufficient because he is the creator of the universe. He makes it sufficient for his purposes and for his glory. My friends, let's get serious about using our gifts for him. It's not about us. It's about him working through us. I wonder if we've wandered too far in our own self-indulgences to do our part to shepherd his gospel to a lost world. We will never be able to give people something to eat if we're only concerned about satisfying our own bellies. Why has God created you and put you on this earth? Well, to glorify him. And so he's calling us to glorify him with all that we have. I want to close this morning by asking you to stand with me and let us read together Psalm 23 to remind us of this one who we call our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we thank you that you are 
our true shepherd. And Lord, that you look at us and you look at us, Lord, not with compassion, but you look at us with love. We are your sheep. And Lord, you have showered us with your grace. And Lord, help us now to have ears that will listen to you, hearts that will obey you, wills that will trust you as we seek to live our lives for your glory. We ask in your precious name. Amen.